0: and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. The ninth chapter of Hebrews begin the 11th verse this morning. I learned something last weekend being away from you that I guess I had just forgotten or didn't realize I guess more than forgotten uh, and that is that I have shrunk. Now y'all, not physically, I'm sorry. I wish that way, of course, but uh, sermon-wise, uh, of course, the the pastor of of Morning View, who uh, we were with last week, is one of our former youth at uh, First Baptist Sweetwater, and he was a pastoral intern there with me uh, two summers, and we got to just get to know him very well. And after the sermon last week, he uh, he stood up and kind of rebuked me before the church because he said I was going to make him look bad because I preached such a short sermon. I only preached 40 minutes, and uh, he said. Uh, I never, and at lunch he said, I never remember you preaching less than 45 or 50. He said, you have really shrunk in your sermons. So I uh, guess you all have done that to me. I don't know. Maybe i got to blame somebody. Uh, I'll try to do better though, all right? Because uh, I don't want you to be shortchanged by any stretch. But we, uh, we did have a great time last weekend uh, speaking to 67 men from Morning View on Friday night and Saturday, talking about, Living in Light of No Condemnation, and we talked about everything from the security of the believer to uh, to idolatry in our lives and, and how idolatry gives rise to, to all sorts of problems within our life that we cannot see sometimes, and we, we just let it blindside us, but we give into it too early. So we had a great time of fellowship, then preaching on worship last Sunday morning at Morning View, and then preaching on worship again that night at 6th Street in Ellick City. I got to see old friends that I haven't seen in many years and uh, even got to see some couples that I married back when I was there and uh, everything. Some of them, two of them had now had children that were about to get married and so it was kind of a, a weird feeling to realize I married these couples and now uh, 27 years later they've got children that are about to get married. I won't be doing those weddings but it was good to see them and see how they grown. And many of most of them uh, all of them that were there walking with Christ and growing in Christ. And it's just always a joy to go back after so long and see some of the ones that you discipled and some of the ones you ministered to in in very difficult times in many ways in some of their lives, to see them walking with Christ and see them enjoying fellowship with Him. So it was a a great weekend, but I did miss you and I missed worshiping, worshiping at Grace because quite honestly, as I've said many times before, there's no place like Grace. To be to worship and so uh, it's good to be back in your Bibles we're going to continue our study of the book of Hebrews the book of Hebrews is that book about the new covenant the the book uh, the book about and the message about all that Christ has done in that new covenant and we've looked at that rather in depth starting with chapter 8 it's turning my page I got to fix that uh, it feels good, but it's turning my page this morning for some reason. Um, the, um, the book that really talks about the sacrifice, as much or more than any other book in all of the, of the New Testament, it focuses on the sacrifice of Christ. The passage we're going to look at this morning, verses 11 through 14, uh, just four verses, but it focuses primarily on the blood of Christ. Its, it's emphasis is on how Christ's blood is effective and efficient to accomplish all that it intends to accomplish, not for one drop to be wasted in that sacrifice and in that death. And it talks about how the new covenant has effects. It carries out things. It, it does things that the old covenant could not do. Now, just to catch up a little bit, because I feel like I've been gone a month just being out one Sunday, but just to kind of review for a moment, these people are struggling with going back to their own way of life. These are Hebrews. These are people who were raised in the whole Jewish tradition of all the sacrifices and all the temple worship and all the rituals that they went through. And because those were visible things, those were things they could see, they were tempted to go back to them. They had tasted the grace of God. They had tasted the presence of Christ. But there was something there that was drawing them, something there that was was causing them to say, but maybe, just maybe, we ought to hang on to the old and not let go of the old altogether. Some of them, no doubt, were wanting to hang on to Christ and hang on to the old and kind of be torn in between. And the writer here is making it very clear. There is no middle ground. There is no straddling the fence. There is no trying to be a, a, a Jew on the Sabbath and go through all the rituals and go through all the formulas that they have and then worship Christ with his body on another day. You have to make a choice. You have to uh, be, be decided between the two. There is no middle ground. Now, we live in a day where we're not tempted to go back to Jewish traditions. I realize that. I don't think that any of you got up yesterday morning or Friday night and thought, you know, just to cover my bases, just to be absolutely sure, maybe I ought to go back to, uh, uh, to the Jewish temples. Maybe I ought to find a Jewish synagogue somewhere and go and, and do whatever they do in this age. They don't offer sacrifices anymore. But just go and do whatever they do so that I might be sure that I'm right with God. Just want just to wanna make sure that all my bases are covered. None of us were tempted to do that, I don't think. Because that's not our old way of life. That's not our history. That's not where we grew up. That's not what we experienced before coming to understand and see and know the grace of God in our life. But I would contend to you this morning that we are still in danger sometimes of trying to go back to our old way of life. Uh, Our old religious way of life our old way of life where we, we tried real hard to please God. And we thought that if we don't please God, if we don't do something right now, current, today, up to date, to please God, that, then God's going to be so angry with me that I'm going to come under the condemnation of God again. And so we fall back into a works salvation idea, a works righteousness. And we see ourselves as only valuable in God's eyes if we are doing something. Now, I'll be the first to say that when we are in Christ, we do something. When we are in Christ, there are works that emulate forth from our life and are demonstrable or seen by other people in our life. That is a given. But I will also be the first to say that those works do absolutely nothing to earn you favor with God. Those works do absolutely nothing to make you right with God. Those merely prove that you are in a gracious state. Those merely show that you have experienced the grace of God and are living under the grace of God and walking in life in the grace of God. That's the whole essence of some of the songs we sang this morning. I mean, you know, we, we, we sang about the, the whole idea of giving God the glory. We, have, we sang about all I have is Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see. He wants us to understand that all we have is Christ, that Jesus is our life, that our riches, our wealth, our property, our goods, whatever we have, all belong to God in essence. They all are His. He's given them to us or let us use them as stewards in this life, but they belong to Him. They're not ours. And we need to come to a point in life where we say, Lord, you are all that I have. You are all that matters. You are all that counts in life. All I have is Christ, and Jesus is my absolute life. That's what the writer of Hebrews wants us to see and understand and live in light of. Our problem is we come along with good things, we think, and we add to that well, I, I do need to trust in Christ, but I also must do whatever. And we add works to faith in Christ. Well, I know I need, to, I, need to, I need to believe in Jesus. I mean, there's no doubt about that, but I don't think that's enough. Friend, if you put anything else in place or add anything to trusting in Christ or take that away in any way, you have failed to understand what the gospel of grace is. And if you fail to understand that, you fail to understand salvation. And if you fail to understand what salvation is, you fail to understand how you can really have a walk with Jesus Christ and to know God in all His fullness and in all His joy. I, I worry about people all the time that they, they think, well, you know, I just, I, I've got I've to have this uh, legalism. I've got to have this other thing. I've got to have something else. When really all we have is Christ. And he is enough and he is sufficient and he is worthy of our worship and our praise. I don't know why I said all that. I wasn't in my notes, but I did anyway. So we'll come back to that later. Verse 11, we'll consider that introductory material. Verse 11 of Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, as through the eternal spirit, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how will it much more cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you remember two weeks ago, we talked about the deficiencies of the Old Covenant. We talked about how the old covenant had a restricted access. Only the high priest could go into the presence of God. And only the priest could go into the holy place to offer sacrifices. The people as a whole were outside of the, of the holy place. They were outside of the things of God. And they had to have somebody go as a mediator, go as someone to intercede for them to go into the holy place and once a year to go into the holy of holies to, uh, to offer sacrifices on their behalf even as the priest offered sacrifices on their own behalf. So so what the writer here is saying is, understand, there was a restricted access, there was a, a restricted redemption, if you will, in the Old Covenant. Not only that, the Old Covenant only brought a partial cleansing. There was only a cleansing for those sins which were done in ignorance. There was no cleansing for willful sin. There was no cleansing for willful disobedience to God. The priest went in, offered sacrifices for sins that were done in ignorance. Those that that people committed without really knowing they were committing them. They were being disobedient to God without really knowing they were being disobedient and those sins were covered. In the old covenant, there was only a partial cleansing for sin and that only for a period of time that was limited. They had to come back year after year and celebration after celebration and sacrifice after sacrifice to offer those all over again because it was only partial in the cleansing that it gave. Because of that, there was only a limited pardon in the Old Covenant. Uh, there was a pardon of sorts that came about when the sacrifices were offered on the people's behalf. Uh, there was that forgiveness of sorts that took place, but that forgiveness was limited. It was limited to the point in which you sinned again. And so if, if, you were li- if they were like most of us, it would only have been limited probably for a few minutes at the most because we, we, tend to, we tend to be a rebellious and a hard stiff-necked people many times even in our ignorance. And, and we, we come and we, we cry out to God and we confess to God but we find ourselves right back in sin before we even turn around almost. So there was a limited pardon under the old covenant. It, it couldn't accomplish a whole lot and nothing permanently. But in verses 11 through 14... The writer starts turning his attention to the effects of the new covenant. What has the new covenant in Christ Jesus done? What has it secured? What has it procured on behalf of the people who are in this new covenant? Those who have come to Jesus Christ by faith in him alone. Not adding anything to it, not taking anything away from it, but just coming by faith in Christ alone alone. Uh, I I love the great cries of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gradia, Sola Fide, uh, uh, Sola Christo, and Sola Deo Gloria. That is, we come understanding by Scripture alone... We come solo Christo by Christ alone. We come by sola fide, by faith alone. We come sola gratia, by grace alone. And all of that, all of our coming, all of our trusting that God is granted to us by grace through faith, comes for the glory of God alone. Just like we sang this morning, you know, receive the glory, Lord. That's what our lives are to be all about. And that's what our salvation is to be all about. And that's what the new covenant relationship that the writer of Hebrews wants us so desperately to understand is really all about. It encompasses all the great cries of the Reformation, and it encompasses all the truth of the gospel message. First of all, the writer writing here says, "But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. Now, he's already established Christ is the high priest. He's the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He has, has no genealogy, has no human right, has no family inheritance right to be a priest, but he is the great high priest of God. He is now the high priest who offers sacrifices on your behalf and my behalf that never end. He does it not through goats and bulls and, and heifers and ashes. He does it through the blood of his cross, and, and that's what he wants us to see here. And this great high priest has entered into... Uh, through a a greater and more perfect tabernacle, a greater and more perfect temple not made with hands like Herod's temple was, it was in this day that they were thinking about when they thought of the temple, that is to say not of this creation, not of this earth, it's a heavenly tabernacle, it's a heavenly place of worship And, and Christ has already established his throne in that place by his resurrection by his proving to be the great high priest. Now follow me here. This is really important. The earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple, merely showed a little bit, a little speck of of the future. It only gave us a little taste of what the heavenly tabernacle is like, what the heavenly place of worship is like. And our churches even, while we're not a temple and we're not a tabernacle, we are a, a body of believers that gather for the purpose of worshiping God and being strengthened in our walk with Him. We're not a temple, we're not a tabernacle, but this gives just a, a little taste of what heaven will be like in that, in that eternal tabernacle that Christ is seated and Christ is ministering on our behalf. There will be worship there that will make this worship look absolutely puny. There will be worship there and there will be glorying of God there and glorying of Jesus Christ there that will make what we look like here, which which I enjoy, by the way, and I I think we do it quite well in in many ways, not to get any kind of spiritual pride here, but I think we really do worship God well. But we don't worship God in in a minuscule way, minuscule way as we will when we come to heaven. Do, Do you understand that? This tabernacle is a perfect tabernacle. It is a true tabernacle, perfect in every respect because man's hands had nothing to do with it. It's not of this creation. It is the creation of God alone. Not only is it a better tabernacle, a more perfect tabernacle, it's not through the blood of goats and calves but through His own blood. It's through His blood, Christ's blood, that He entered the holy place once and for all. He doesn't go in and out like the old high priest did. Every year, Day of Atonement, remember that, Day of Atonement, important. That's when the people's sins were atoned for, when the the high priest went into the holy place, the Holy of Holies, where the tabernacle was, where the the, uh, Ark of the Covenant was that contained all the relics of Aaron's rod that budded and and the, the tablets of the law and the cup of the manna or the box of manna, and all those were there. And he would go in on behalf of the people and he would offer that sacrifice once a year and then the next year and then the next year and then the next year. The writer says here, understand, Jesus doesn't use goats, he doesn't use calves, but he goes through His own blood. And by doing that, He has done it once and for all, never to be repeated, never to be done again. Now all that's important to understand what He's about to say about the effects of the new covenant. When you are in the new covenant. In this new covenant, He has obtained eternal redemption. He has is, he is secured our redemption. And when I say secured it, I mean he secured it for all of eternity. It's not a not, not a short-lived thing. It's not a, it's not a conditional thing that if you work hard and do good and, and earn enough points, you'll be able to have that redemption when you die. It is a redemption that is an eternal redemption earned by Christ, bought by Christ, secured by Christ, totally apart from you. Now now that sounds almost too good to be true. I got to be honest with you. And if, if the Holy Scripture had not told us that was the truth, I never would have imagined it. I would always imagine that I had to try to keep accounts right with God. I would always imagine that even though I had trusted Christ, even though I'd had a, a conversion experience and I'd been given a new birth, as the scripture talks about, even though I'd had some kind of religious, spiritual experience, I would always have to keep trying to be better and become better and, and, and do more good in order to really keep this redemption that Christ bought for me. The writer says, no. It's an eternal redemption that is paid for not by your good deeds, paid for not by how religious you can be, paid for not by how good you can be, but paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the first thing is, it secures our redemption. Secondly, he says, he goes on to say, how much more... How much more? I mean, that is an expression of of superabundance. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered Himself without blemish to God. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was the only true, unblemished Lamb of God that was ever offered. He offered Himself through the eternal Spirit. That is, through the Holy Spirit, he, He offered Himself God. You know, we could spend all day on that. I'll try not to do that. But this whole concept of what the sacrifice was for must be understood. You know, we a lot of times talk about how Christ died for us. Christ died for us. And there's a level in which that is true. But I want you to see here that the sacrifice was not offered to us. Not even offered so much for us. The sacrifice was offered to God. Jesus Christ, the unblemished, eternal Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, gave a sacrifice, offered Himself to God. Now, now that brings up all the discussions we've had in the past through uh, some of the other books we've studied on the whole concept of propitiation. You see, God's wrath is real. God's wrath is true. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, for the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness everywhere. And and that is all unrighteousness in your life and all all ungodliness in your life unrighteousness is behavior, ungodliness is living as though God doesn't matter or living as though God doesn't exist, sort of a practical atheism that all pl- people have struggles with from time to time. God's wrath is being poured out against all of that and something has to be done to, to appease that wrath. Something has to be done to deflect that wrath. Something has to be done to, to, bring a, to bring an end to that wrath in the life of the believer and this is what happened. Jesus offered himself to God God as our sacrifice, as our substitute. He offered himself to God in our place. We might have eternal redemption. And secondly, he says here, that that he might cleanse your conscience from dead works. (laughs) I love that. He might cleanse your conscience. So not only does he secure our redemption, he also purifies our conscience. Now now some of us, I realize, have a more, how shall I say, active conscience than others. Some of us, you know, we we don't have a big, we don't struggle with conscience. That conscience is that, that internal something, I don't know, I hesitate to call it a voice, but it's, it's something internal that just says, hey, that's wrong. Hey, dummy, what are you doing? That's what mind says all the time anyway. Are you out of your ever-loving mind? I mean, the conscience is that, is that internal understanding, that internal reality that, that something is sin, something is wrong. And, and the truth of the matter is, we, we, tend to, we, we tend to try to turn it down. Why with the volume on our radio in our car, it gets too loud. We want to just take the knob and turn it down. Well, in our life, we try to turn down the conscience because, boy, we don't want the conscience screaming in our ear, dummy, what are you doing? This sacrifice that was offered cleanses your conscience. Now, that doesn't mean the conscience no longer is effective. Matter of fact, it's just the opposite. It, it means that, that when, we, when we're when we over there trying to turn it down, the Holy Spirit's over there turning it up and he has the master volume control. Cleansing our conscience just means it makes it more in tune to what is truth, makes it more in tune to what is right and wrong. I, I like how the writer of Hebrews and Jeremiah put it in the New Covenant and said, in the New Covenant, his law is written upon your mind, his law is written upon your hearts. I mean, there's the There's the reality of this internal, this this conscience matter that that Christ has by His sacrifice to God cleansed in our life that we might be more attuned with a a motivation for obedience, with a motivation for for, for obedience to Him. But, But I want you to see what it says the conscience is cleansed of from dead works. From dead works. What in the world are dead works? Dead works are anything you're doing to try to earn favor with God. Isaiah had another way of putting it. He said, all our righteousness, righteousness is good works. He said, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. You ever thought about that? Have you ever really, I mean, really thought about that? what, What the prophet is saying there? All our righteousness, our righteousness, not his righteousness, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. That is, the best you can do is not good enough the best you can do is not acceptable for any favor with God. And and the more you try to make that favorable, the more you try to earn standing with God by those good works, they become dead works because they're only alive when they're in Christ. Just as you are only alive when you are in Christ. And so this new covenant relationship, the writer of Hebrews says has cleansed our conscience from good works. In other words, we're not always feeling guilty about the fact that we can't do anything for God, that we can't do anything to earn God's favor, that we can't do anything to make God happier with us than he already is, or we can't do anything to keep him from getting angry with us because he's not going to because we're covered by Christ. I mean, it cleanses us from dead works. I mean, it takes away all of that self-righteous piety that, that tries to make myself right with God. That's something that needs to be cleansed away in every one of our lives. Now I hear the voices. Not in my head, in your head. I hear you saying, oh, so we're not supposed to serve Christ. We're not supposed to minister to one another. We're not supposed to minister to the world. We're not supposed to reach out with evangelistic em- em- emphasis with, with our community. We're not supposed to try to, to, to take the gospel out. We're just supposed to sit around and wait. No, that's not what I said at all. The whole motivation changes. The whole understanding of it changes when our conscience has been cleared. So much so that he says it will cleanse your conscience from dead works too. That two is important there. It says you go from dead works to doing something from dead works to, to seeing something real in your life, and that's what the, the new covenant does. It sanctifies our service. It says it cleanses our conscience from dead works in order that to serve the living God. It sanctifies our service to God. It, it purifies our service to Christ. Yes, there are good works. Yes, there is service. Yes, there is ministry. But it's not done because I want people to say, Do you know what a good man Bill Haynes is? Oh, he does such good deeds. But rather, I want all the attention for that, all of the glory for that, all of the credit for that, to not come to me, but to go to him. No, I serve a living God. I serve a true God. I serve a God that is worthy of praise. I'm not. Because if I'm not careful, I, call, I fall right back into this whole works thing. Oh, I've got to do this for God. So I want to be happy. I want God to be happy. I want everything to be right. But no, God says, look, let me cleanse your conscience by the, by the new covenant, by the very blood of Christ. Let your, let your conscience be cleared. Know my law in your heart and in your mind because it's implanted there by the Holy Spirit. And then you may serve me in a sanctified service that's not a guilt-driven service, but is a joy-filled service. I can't tell you the of people I've talked with over the 40 years of my ministry that you can just tell they're teaching Sunday school or they're, or they're on an evangelism team or they're, they're on some kind of ministry team just because they, they feel guilty if they don't. oh man, if I don't do this, God might not like me. Well, if God's not going to like you for not doing that, God doesn't like you anyway, okay? Which means you're not in Christ. Which means the new covenant has not been applied by the Holy Spirit applying Christ's blood to your life for that redemption and for that cleansing so that you might serve him. If it's all out of guilt, forget it. But if you know Him, and if you know this new covenant relationship with Him, because you're now in Christ, the old man is crucified, and behold, all things are become new. He now is in you, and you are in Him, and you are walking together. If that is the relationship, then I want you to understand, it sanctifies our service, and we serve not out of guilt, but out of joyous obedience. It goes from, man, I feel like I just got to do this to say, man, thank you, God, for letting me do this. Can you imagine how much difference that is in ministry? Oh, man, I got to do this. Oh, man, Lord, thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for giving me the the gifts. Thank you for giving me the ability to serve you in this way. Lord, I just want to walk with you and serve you in a sanctified service that's because of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else nothing else several things that can flow out of that just by way of application that I want you to see and one I think is, is implied not only here but in other places in this whole discussion of the new covenant and that is Christians will be attentive learners of the truth of God Christians really will want to know more about him and know him better and know his word more. There will be an appetite in this cleansed conscience that will cause true believers to be attentive learners of the things of God. Second thing that flows out of this is Christians will be sincere repenters. Now, I looked that up in the dictionary and I tried my spell check, and there is no such word as, a, as repenters, okay? Uh, it kept wanting me to say penitence, but that sounds too Catholic. So, so I want to coin a word this morning, and you can write it down, and we'll all submit it to Webster's, and maybe we can get it in the dictionary. But Christians will be sincere repenters. They will find themselves repenting when, when their conscience is... is infused by the Holy Spirit and cleansed by the blood of Christ they will be sincere repenters they, that will be a way of life to them Lord I know that sin I agree with you that sin that's confession and I turn from that sin in order to walk in joyous service of you I was reading D.A. Carson this past week one of my favorite New Testament theologians and, and Carson made this statement and, and boy it kind of slapped me in the face He said, A true believer repents of sins. A false believer makes excuses. Think about that a minute. A a true believer, when sin is, when conviction comes, says, Lord, I agree with you that sin, I confess that sin, and I repent of it, I turn away from it. A, a, A false believer says, Oh, oh, well, I wouldn't have done that if my husband hadn't have made me do it. Or, you know, if my children were obedient, I wouldn't have been that way. Or, or if my wife was nicer to me, I wouldn't have reacted that way. You know, it goes all, you know, I, I love the story in the Garden of Eden with the temptation to eat the fruit. And after they ate the fruit and, and, and God came to them in the garden, He said, what have you done? And Adam's first response was to say, oh, Lord, that woman who you gave me made me eat of it. He he blames Eve, but in a a little subtle way, he's also blaming God for his sin, isn't he? And and Eve, not to be bettered by Adam, said, oh, but but Lord, it was that serpent that you put in the garden that, that made me eat of it. I mean, it wasn't my fault, it was the serpent's fault. And we're just like that, aren't we? Well, the last line of that the punchline of that is of course the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on but that's another part of the story the essence of the story is we're just like adam we're just like eve too often we just try to make excuses we try to pass the blame to somebody else christians are attentive learners christians are sincere repenters and finally christians are submissive servants the whole idea there that he's talking about when he talks about sanctifying our service to serve the living God, cleansing our conscience from dead works to serve the living God carries with it the idea of absolute submissive servants. He doesn't use the word Paul loves there, but he uses a word that's similar. I like Paul's word even better. Paul used the word doulos in the Greek. Doulos is a word that we sanitize a little bit and call it bond servant or servant of the Lord. The the literal meaning of doulos is slave. A slave to Christ. A submissive slave to Christ. Not an argumentative slave. Not an argumentative servant. But a submissive servant to serve the living God. Is there any greater privilege? Is there any greater joy in all the world than serving the living God? Not out of our righteousness, but out of Christ's righteousness, not out of what we have done or what we do, but out of what He has done in our life to change us completely, is moving us toward the image of Christ. Every day, every time we worship, every time we come to His Word. I mean, this new covenant, I mean, it's a big deal we've only talked about it about four or five Sundays and we, we, we've probably not done it justice because this whole idea of the new covenant is a big deal in the New Testament. It's a big deal in your life if you're in Christ. Because you no longer have to do all the old ritual. It's no longer a matter of trying to please God and get forgiveness because you've you've blown it again. You recognize your forgiveness is there. You recognize there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and you live in light of that. That's a liberating thing. That's a freeing thing. That's a joyous thing. It it ought not lead to deeper sin. It ought to lead to deeper joy and deeper obedience as we walk in Him. The New Covenant Don't try to add anything to it. Certainly don't take anything away from it. But recognize it is the power of God to bring about your eternal redemption, your, your, your purified conscience, and sanctifying your service. Let's pray. Father, the new covenant is effective and efficient and always accomplishes its work for those who are in Christ. Father, apply that truth to our lives today. Lord, help us to walk in that truth, to abide in that truth, to ever live in accordance with it. Father, I pray for men and women who may be here this morning that are not in that new covenant. They've never trusted you. They've never known your grace in their life. Father, I pray that this morning that will become a reality, that your Holy Spirit would literally invade their life, break their will, Lord, turn them toward Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that for others who are just struggling with the old way of life and the new life they profess, that that Lord, you would show them the freedom and the joy that comes in the new covenant and, and let them let go of the old life completely. Quit carrying it around like a corpse on their back. Father, I pray for those of us who are in the new covenant. We know we're in the new covenant. Help us, Lord, to joyfully serve you in everything we do. May our job be a joyful service to you. Lord, if we're a student, may our going to school be a joyful service to you. And may we go into each of those areas with the desire to bring glory to you and you alone. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.